Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now last week when we left off, the few things that we saw from Genesis 18 and uh, the second half of Genesis 18, We saw that God had intended to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sinfulness. And yet we saw that as as Abraham is petitioning before the Lord, he recognizes that God is righteous, that he will do only what is right. That when he meets out his judgment, it is never arbitrary. It's never out of a whim. That he will establish guilt and when he judges someone, it is always deserving. And yet we also saw that as Abraham was petitioning before the Lord, He is merciful and gracious and patient with Abraham in that Abraham is petitioning before the Lord. Lord, Lord, what if there are 50 righteous people? For the sake of those 50 people, would you save the whole city? Would you spare the whole city? And the Lord knows exactly how many righteous are there in the city. And yet, the Lord condescends, even invites Abraham into conversation with him, into intimacy with him, for Abraham to open up his heart to the Lord. Such that ultimately when Abraham knows God intimately and he starts praying accordingly, God will answer Abraham's prayer because it becomes the means by which God will accomplish what he has already purposed. And we saw that even at the end, how God is being so merciful where he said, yes, if there are just ten righteous people, he will spare the city of Sodom. And we saw that at the end of that, the Lord goes away. Abraham rests in the fact that God will do what is right. And now Genesis 19 unfolds. I've titled this morning's sermon as God's mercy and judgment in Sodom. God's mercy and judgment in Sodom. And we'll look at this passage, verses 1 through 29, in three sections. In just what happens in these three sections. Firstly, in verses 1 through 14, we will look at Sodom's guilt being established. Then in verses 15 through 22, we'll see God's astounding mercy displayed. And then in verses 23 to 29, we'll see God's righteous judgment executed. And we will see how in all this, God indeed will do what is only right. 
So firstly, Sodom's guilt established. Verse 19, uh, chapter 19 and verse 1. It says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Remember, the Lord sent two angels, not because he didn't know what was going on in Sodom, but it was again his condescension, his grace, his mercy, to establish the fact that Sodom was indeed a wicked city, that Sodom was indeed guilty. Not for his benefit, but for Abraham's benefit and for our benefit. Because we know this is the kind of God he is. So the two angels have come to Sodom to investigate. And Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now I want you to think of, even over the last few chapters, the the way in which Lot gets sucked into Sodom. As Lot parted ways with his uncle Abraham, in Genesis 13, 12, we read at the time that he moved his tent as far as Sodom. So at that point, he's close to the outskirts of Sodom. Then in Genesis 14, 12, when the war is going on and he's taken as a captive, in Genesis 14, 12, we see that Lot moves from the outskirts of Sodom and he's in fact dwelling in Sodom. And now he's not only dwelling in Sodom, he's at the city gates. Now what's so special about the city gates? Well, the city gates in those, in those days were centers of administration and, and business and even settling of legal disputes. So when you think about it, 15, more than 15 years have passed since Lot has parted ways with his uncle, Abraham. And now after all these years in Sodom, we see him as a prominent figure. In fact, what we'll even see here is that he's not even living uh, in a tent anymore, unlike his uncle, but he lives in a house. You might be thinking, you know, what's the issue with living in a house? Well, it shows Lot's heart. See, his heart was so settled in Sodom that it has now become his permanent home. He's not holding on to the things of Sodom or the things of this world loosely like his uncle uh, Abraham who has all this stuff and still continues to live in tents. So now Lot is sitting in the city gates and he sees these two men who are really the angels that the Lord sent to investigate Sodom. And similar to Abraham, he senses something of the greatness of these men. And there's a lot of similarity between what Abraham and Lot do. But one big difference even at the start is, while Abraham was sitting at the entrance of his tent at the heat of the day, where there's a lot of light, 
You see Lot now sitting at the gate of Sodom in the evening when it is dark. He's sitting at the gate of the city which is spiritually dark and the angels are coming to the city when it is physically dark. So it is setting the scene for something ominous. That something not so nice is going to happen. Continuing on uh, the rest of verse 1 and 2 and 3. When Lot saw them, that's the two angels, or the two men, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So similar to his uncle, Lot is also being hospitable here to these men. And he's invited them to his home. So that they can be refreshed, so that they can wash up and and just rest in his home. And then he says, uh, and you know what? After you've rested and you've been refreshed and you've cleaned up, you can rise up early in the morning and you can go on your way. Before everyone wakes up and gets about their business, he tells his guests, you know, right at the crack of dawn, you can be on your way. You know, I suspect Lot is telling them that they can leave early like this because he knows how wicked the city of Sodom is. But the guests refuse his offer of hospitality because they want to spend the night in the town square. Now remember again, these two guests are angels who've come in the form of men. And they have come to investigate the depth of the wickedness of the city of Sodom. And where else do you best see what the city is like than in the CBD area, right? And that's what the town square is. What happens in the nightlife of the town square would give the angels a full picture of the level of wickedness in Sodom. But the fact that these two guests refuse to stay with Lot, Lot is taken aback, so to speak. Because he's fearful of what will happen to his guests if they're alone by themselves in the town square of Sodom. Because he knew exactly what the nightlife of Sodom was. And so Lot strongly urges his guests to stay with him. And they agree. And then he provides them with a banquet meal. Now, two things I want you to see here with regards to Lot, where Lot is unlike the Sodomites here. One, he's hospitable. I mean, he's a, some sort of official at the city gates. And yet, you know, these guests have come. He's the one who's buying to them. And he's the one who's inviting them into their home. 
And secondly, what you see here is he's seeking to protect these newcomers from the vileness of the city that he knows the city to be. So he's someone who's concerned for others, and it's an evidence that he's someone who is, in, in, in a sense, very different from the Sodomites. See, because the people of Sodom, on the other hand, were self-centered, self-indulgent, and didn't care about others. Now, word got around. And it spread like wildfire all around Sodom. That two new guests have come to the house of Lot. And look at what happens. Verse 4 and verse 5. But before they lay down, that's Lot and his guests and the rest of his household, before they went to sleep. The men of the city... The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. See, this response from, that you see from the people of Sodom, it, it really shows the the wickedness and the vileness of the people there. And what the people want, what these men want, is a total perversion of what God has designed. Notice what the men of the city are demanding. As they demand the guests to be brought out, they say, so that they may know them. Now, previously in Genesis, this language of knowing, it's used within the context of marriage. Genesis 4.1, where it says, And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. Or Genesis 4.17, where, 4, where it says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived. So it's talking about the sexual union between a husband and a wife within that marriage relationship. And what these men want to do is pervert what God has designed to take place only within the context of that marriage union between a man and a woman. It is totally perverse. And I want you to see what Scripture says about this kind of homosexual sin. Leviticus 18.22 says this, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Oh, let's go to the New Testament. If you think, oh, that's the Old Testament. Romans 1.26 and 27, where it says that these are unnatural relations. Look at what it says in 26 and 27. For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with men and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
In fact, the Bible says that any kind of sexual activity that takes place outside the bounds of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman is condemned. And scripture is very clear. I'd have to take a whole different sermon if I were to elaborate all of the verses that scripture talks about with regards to that. And so this is what's happening here. That when people reject God and when they want to go their own way, God gives them over to their own lusts. So much so that what is natural, they, they go away from that and they start doing even the most unnatural things. And notice also to emphasize the, the pervasiveness of the depravity of the men of Sodom. Look at verse 4 again. It says, all the men of Sodom had surrounded Lot's house, young and old, to the very last man. Without exception, every man of Sodom was there outside of Lot's house. Age no bar. Young and old, without exception, are there. And what is this showing? Well, this is showing that there is not even ten righteous people in Sodom. Not even ten. And so this is showing that because there is not even ten righteous people, God is absolutely justified in destroying Sodom. Now as Lot hears the whole mob calling out from outside his house, he goes outside to kind of settle the matter. Look at verse 6 and 7. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So Lot is, is trying to pacify them. He's calling them, hey, brothers, you know, we're all brothers of this land. And he's saying, hey, don't do such a wicked thing. And again, I want to point out here that he's being, he's being different from the rest of the Sodomite men here. He's not joining in with them. He's recognizing this is a wicked thing and, and he's... You, you know, a, as sheepishly as he might be trying to do this, he's calling them brothers and things like that, and he's, and he's saying, hey, r recognize that this is a sinful thing. But then, what Lot says next is absolutely shocking. Verse 8. So he says that to the people, and then he offers this solution. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. I mean, it's commendable Lot's desire to want to protect his guests, but then to say to the mob, you can have my daughters and do to them whatever you please. 
I mean, that's almost unthinkable. What kind of father would do that? And if you, th- and if you think, oh, you know, but Lot was in such a difficult position. Well, how did he get into that position in the first place? It was the foolish choices just over a period of time, the foolish choices that Lot made that now he's found himself in this difficult position. And regardless of the difficult position that he has found himself in now to offer his daughters like that, is, is really revealing of Lot's heart, how he has allowed his heart and mind to be compromised by the wickedness around him. For someone who is a believer, as Second Peter 2 says that Lot is, Lot is not thinking straight. He is compromised. Now look at how the mob response verse 9 but they said stand back and they said this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge now we will deal worse with you than with them then they pressed hard against the man lot and you drew near to break the door down the mob is more angered and they say to lot no you're not one of us You're not even one of our brothers. You're not even a citizen here. You're just a sojourner, a foreigner who's come from outside. And you now come to judge us? You know, over here, two things that I want to point out here. If you remember... Lot is some kind of city official. And despite Lot being a city official, what you see here is he has no influence whatsoever over the people. Nothing. Who knows, this may have been the first time that Lot's actually called out their sin. And secondly, what we see here is that when Lot is now not supportive of the people's actions, they're angered and they're offended because that's such a great offense. Here's what Romans 1.32 says. That if you haven't read Romans 1 recently, I want to encourage you to go home and read it sometime today, especially in light of what we are going to look at this morning. The end of Romans 1, Romans 1, 32 says that when people willfully reject God and they suppress the truth about Him and God gives them to their own lusts and sin, there's even a seeking out other people to approve that sin. And so when that approval is not given, you experience their fury. This is not very different from the world we live in, is it? And yet Romans 1 was not written 
today or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It was written 2,000 years ago. Oh, how not so different the world we live in right now. See, everything is fine so long as you approve the things of the world. But the minute you don't approve something of the world, in fact, if you don't celebrate it, then it's seen as hateful speech. And the whole world will come around to take you down. Uh, isn't it funny that the, the world says, oh, we're being loving, uh, we, we are being all-inclusive. When in reality, all the world is doing is, so long as you don't come against our belief system, we love everyone. That's all the world is doing. But when there's a clash against the belief system of the world, there is outrage. So what are we to do as, as Christians? doesn't mean that therefore we go out and be nasty and rude and just, you know, just aggravate the world. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to not hate anyone around. We're in fact, we're called to love our enemies. What we should do is in love and with great patience, we still hold on to God's word without compromise. Even when it is going against the belief system of the world. Even when the whole world will come against you. So the mob is angered. And they want to assault Lot as well as along with his guests. In fact, they say, you know, we're going to do worse to you. And so they manhandle Lot and they come close to breaking the door of his house. And now the angels intervene. Look at verses 10 and 11. But the men, that's talking about the angels. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. So the angels, what they do is they, they quickly pull Lot into the house. And they strike all the men there with blindness. But notice something here. Not one of them are scared. Not one of them is thinking, wow, you know, all of us are struck blind. What's going to happen next if we don't stop? Instead, they're so hardened, so given over to their sinful lust, so suppressed the truth about God, even though they've experienced something of the grace of God, something of the deliverance of God through Abraham many years ago, and even heard about it with their interaction with Abraham and Melchizedek. They have rejected it all. 
And they are now so hardened, so given over to their sinful lust, that even in their blindness, they're groping for the door of the house. They still don't stop. In fact, it says that they're worn out just trying to find the door because they're also blind. And they tie themselves out this way. And so now the angels speak to Lot because they're preparing to take action. And they speak to Lot and say, uh, ask about his family, verses 12 and 13. Then the men, that's again the angels, said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. The guilt of the people of Sodom have been established. And, and one thing I want, to, I want you to take note here is and Lot believes by faith that the Lord is going to destroy Sodom because of its wickedness. He fully believes it. And so look at what, it, what he does. Verse 14. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. See, when he goes to his sons-in-law to tell them about God's coming judgment because of the wickedness of Sodom, they think he's joking. They have a good laugh. And what you see here again is Lot doesn't have any influence in the lives of even his son-in-laws. They don't take him seriously. Again, it, 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 it gives us some sort of picture of the kind of life that Lot would have lived in Sodom. But also, I want you to think about this as well. His sons-in-law would have been part of the mob outside of Lot's house. Because remember, it was all the men of Sodom. Every last one of them. The young to the old, every one of them was outside Lot's house. Seeking to assault his guests. Again, what this points out, and these were the men that were to marry his daughters. And again, what this points to, the, it points to the fact that while Lot did not live an unrighteous life like the Sodomites, he allowed his heart to be influenced by the wickedness of Sodom. And he lived a compromised life. On the one side, he's quietly trying to live for the Lord. And on the other side, he's trying to please the people of Sodom in some way. 
So how are we as believers to live? Again, we shouldn't be brash or rude with the world around us. We must be loving. But at the same time, we must live as believers in this world. Where people around us know that we are indeed Christians. That we follow Jesus Christ. It's not something to be ashamed of. Otherwise, we risk losing our testimony in this world like Lot. And it will have grave implications even for uh, the loved ones around us. So in this section, from verses 1 through 14, we get confirmation about the guilt of Sodom. But we also see Lot, though a believer, is influenced by Sodom and leading a compromised life such that he has no influence or testimony to bear to the people around him. Now we move on to the next section. As the guilt is established, we see God's astounding mercy that's displayed in verses 15 through 22. God's astounding mercy displayed. Verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. So at the crack of dawn, the, the angels are, the, are hurrying Lot. They're saying, time's up, Lot. Guilt has been established. Quickly now, take your wife and your two daughters and get out of here. Notice Lot's response, beginning of verse 16. But he lingered. Lot lingered. See, I want you to understand something here. This is not Lot lingering because he was drawn to the wickedness of Sodom. I hope no one gets this impression as you listen to this message. Or listen, Lot as was a believer, but he lived a compromised life. That gives me now an excuse to live a lifestyle of sin. Because nobody is perfect, right? And I can just continue on in my sinful lifestyle and just coddle it and that's okay. No, Lot is not lingering because he's drawn to the wickedness of Sodom. In fact, as we read this morning... Look at 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. And there, it very clearly tells us that Lot was a righteous man and he was greatly distressed by the wickedness of Sodom. That daily his soul was tormented by the sin of Sodom. Then, then you say, then why does he linger? Well, you, for that, you need to go back and think through why Lot moved to such a wicked place like Sodom in the first place. See, because unlike Abraham, the Lord didn't call Lot to go to Sodom. 
It was more so that Lot was sick of that wandering life, that nomadic life as a herdsman living in tents and even having to share pasture lands with his uncle Abraham that caused him to move. And if you remember back in Genesis 13.10 when you know, they are splitting ways and Abraham says, Lot, you take your first pick. Take any which land you want. You go that direction and I'll go in the opposite direction. Remember in Genesis 13.10, Lot, as he looked down from the hills to the valley, he looked at Sodom. And what did Sodom look like? It looked like the Garden of Eden. See, it was a very luscious and green and prosperous place. It was a place that was appealing to the eye, considering all the sparse hills and the you know, sparse grassland areas in the land of Canaan. And then furthermore, if you turn to Ezekiel 16, 49, it gives us some more, uh, some more of a description of what Sodom was like. It says that Sodom was a place that had excess of food. It was prosperous. There was ease, a comfortable living. Every material need was taken care of in Sodom. So that's the appeal for Lot to go to Sodom and make his home there. And now he's lingering. He's hesitating to leave. And you have to ask yourself the question, does he not believe that God is going to destroy Sodom? Of course he does. I mean, he just went to his sons-in-law and tried to warn them. But again, the, the issue is this. Lot's heart is so tangled in the comforts of Sodom that he cannot think straight. That his spiritual compass is just going haywire. He has a prominent position there in Sodom. He has a life of ease, lots of riches. And so he's lingering, he's, he's stalling, he's just kind of dragging his feet. And this can happen to any believer. You know, if we're toying around with sin... And then godly people come and tell us to, to stay away perhaps from, stay away from this person or stay away from that crowd or stay away from that particular place or stay away from that particular job or, or some particular thing that you may be involved in. And then even as a believer, sometimes we can then hesitate, right? Oh, I don't know. Why? Because now our hearts have become dull. And we can't think clearly about the dangers that are involved. So that's what's going on with Lot. It's an appeal of comfort and ease and prominence in Sodom. And being in a sinful environment has only made his heart and mind even more dull and his spiritual compass is not working at all. But God is oh so gracious and merciful. Look at the rest of verse 16. So the men 
seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. The angels, angels literally grab Lot by the hand and his wife and his two daughters and they drag them out of the city of Sodom. Why? Not because they deserved it. But because the Lord was being merciful to Lot. But in case some of you are thinking, but that's not what Lot deserves. That's right. And that's the whole point. God's mercy is always undeserved. It is never merited. It is solely based on His grace. So the Lord is going to totally destroy the whole region. And as they were brought outside Sodom, one of the angels said this to them, verse 17. As they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Now notice Lot's response. Verses 18 through 2. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, uh, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one and my life will be saved? I mean, it's astounding, right? Lord's respo uh, Lot's response. I mean, fir uh, first he acknowledges God's favor and kindness in saving his life from Sodom. But then he says, I can't escape to the hills or the mountains. Why? Because he thinks either he won't make it or perhaps once he gets to the mountains, he can't live in that sort of mountain lifestyle. Regardless, what you see here with Lot is he, he's just now driven by fear and, and, and doubt because he's out of his comfortable life and he's scared and, and all these doubts are creeping in and he doesn't know what to do. And so in the midst of this turmoil, he tells the angels, what about that little city over there? And in fact, Genesis 14.2, it informs us that this little city was the, most likely the smallest of the cities of the valley. And as per Genesis 14.2, it was clearly part of the associated cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there you see that this city was first called Bela, and later it was called Zoar. 
Why? Because Zoar means little. So Lot is petitioning with the angels here saying, what about that small city there? It's only little. And the appeal again? Because it's a little Sodom. There's comfort and ease and, and riches and luscious green pastures and whatever else. So it would be comfortable for him as opposed to the hilly regions. And evidently, just as sinful as Sodom was, this place was also sinful because this place is also penciled in to be destroyed as well. So as astounding as Lot's request is, what is even more astounding is the Lord's grace and mercy towards Lot. Look at verses 21 and 22. And he said to him, Behold, I will grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. It was penciled in to be overthrown, but it will not be overthrown. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. See, not only does the Lord mercifully grant Lot's request, Zoar, a, a, a mini Sodom-like city, is also spared. Why? Because of this one righteous Lot. And really, when you think about it, the only reason Lot was saved was because he was righteous. Now, in case you're struggling to come to grips with, wow, this, this man, Lot, you know, I'm really struggling to call him righteous. I really am. If you're thinking that way, then I would just ask you to turn to 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8 again. And three times, not just once, three times, Peter says that Lot was a righteous man. And I, and I want you to understand this, that this righteousness that we're talking about here, it is a righteousness that is by faith apart from any human work. See, the Lot believed that the Lord will judge sinners, but that he was also able to save a sinner like him. And that kind of faith is counted as, as righteousness, just like in the case of Abraham. So here's the thing we need to remind ourselves regularly. If we think of the story of Lot, and we're having trouble thinking of Lot as a righteous person. To be righteous, as far as the Lord is concerned, has nothing to do with what a person does. Let me say that again. To be considered righteous as far as the Lord is concerned has nothing to do with what a person does. But it has everything to do with what the Lord does as He declares the person righteous because of their faith in Him. 
See, when a person believes in Jesus Christ and that Christ died, you know, where they recognize and acknowledge and submit to the fact Christ died for a sinner like me and you trust in him and you rely on him, such a person is declared righteous in the Lord's eyes. You never become more righteous in the Lord's eyes by the things that you do. You can never become more righteous by the things that you do. Why? Because this is a righteousness that comes by faith, that comes through faith from the Lord Himself. But I would say this a person who is declared righteous in God's sight will externally through their life prove themselves to be righteous in some form or the other. Some to a greater degree, some to a lesser degree. But there will be some proof of it. And we see some proof in Lot's life. As compromised as Lot was, as much as he didn't really have a testimony for the Lord in Sodom, he had no influence over others in Sodom. And he lived with fear and doubts. And as he's out of Sodom, he's filled further with fear and doubts. We do see some of Lot's righteousness lived out as he lived his life. For starters, again, I want to remind you, he didn't live like the Sodomites. He didn't participate in their unrighteous acts. He cared for others and sought to protect his guests from evil. He trusted in the Lord's word about sending judgment and his ability to save him. When the Lord said, okay, now you go there. Okay, he believed that and he went there obediently. And as 2 Peter 2 says, there was a daily war in his heart, even as he was tormented by the sin of Sodom. So there was a battle raging with his heart, as compromised as he was. But he wasn't engaging in overt sin. He was just somebody who was called towards the Lord in, to some extent because of the kind of environment that he was in and the compromises he had to make as a result. But I want to remind you again, none of these things that we talk about with regards to Lot, him not living like the Sodomites, or the fact that he cared for others and protected his guests, trusted in the Lord, none of those things make him righteous in of himself. It was simply an evidence that he had a righteousness that came from the Lord by faith. That needs to be very clear in our minds. And the point of Lot's account is exactly that. You know, if we have any doubts with all the theology that we have, oh, that person, ah, I don't think he's righteous enough. Well, this is why there's a person like Lot mentioned here and the Lord says he was a righteous person. As, as compromised as he was, he was righteous in the Lord's eyes because he trusted in the Lord to save him and he believed in him. 
But again, I want to give caution for those of you who are thinking, this is an excuse for me to therefore live in my sinful lifestyle, whatever hidden sin I've got, and to live that way. That's not what's going on with Lot. He was compromised, but more so in a different sense. But he's not living in overt sin like that. And the point of Lot's account is, as 2 Peter 2.9 says, is to show that the Lord saves those who are righteous in his sight. Yes, even believers who don't have a testimony in this world, even believers who are weak and doubtful, people like Lot, that God will still save those who are righteous in his sight. And Lot is simply an example of that. You know, as Christians, if we are honest with ourselves, I wonder if we can identify with Lot. Sure, our, our lives may not look exactly like Lot's life, but let me ask you this. Don't we have areas in our life where we are inconsistent? Areas in our life where our heart still has a pull to the things of this world? Remember, Lot didn't even have a Bible, but we have the Word of God available to us fully and freely. And yet we spend so little time in the Word. And there's so much that we know already from the Bible that we don't consistently put to practice. But here's the astounding thing. If you have fully put your trust in Jesus and you understand that He alone is your Lord and Savior and your everything, then you are counted as righteous in His eyes. The weakest Christian to the strongest Christian is counted equally as righteous in the Lord's eyes. You say, why? Because it is a righteousness that is not based on human work, but it is based on what the Lord Jesus has done. Now, as a believer, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, but that kind of grace, that kind of mercy is outrageous. I, you know, nobody deserves that kind of grace. Then I would say, now you're thinking rightly about God's grace and mercy. The grace and mercy of our Lord is always, always undeserved. His mercy and grace is much more undeserved than we think. And which also makes it much more greater than we think. It's precisely because we see our sin so little, we see so little of the mercy and grace of God. But when we see more and more of our sin, we will see more and more of the grace and mercy of our Lord that is shown through Jesus Christ. 
And I pray that as we see more and more of how undeserved we are of God's grace and mercy in making us righteous and, ser- and saving us, that we would also realize that it's this very same grace then that enables us to live for Him. And so that will only make us bold as we cling on to His grace in this world and live boldly for Him and not live a compromised life. So we see that the guilt of Sodom is established, God's astounding mercy displayed, and lastly, we'll see God's righteous judgment executed, verses 23 to 29. God's righteous judgment executed, verse 23 23 to 25. The Lord had risen on the earth, Uh, Pardon me, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. See, except for that small city of Zoar, where Lot had traveled to, the Lord brought down his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and their associated cities. All the cities in the valley wiped out. Fire and sulfur out of heaven was poured down on these wicked cities. The whole region was incinerated. All life, including plant life, was totally destroyed. Anything that was associated with those wicked cities were totally destroyed. What once looked like the luscious Garden of Eden now became a charred and desolate graveyard. See, this wasn't just some naturalistic phenomenon or some freak of nature and suddenly, you know, sulfur and fire fell down from heaven just in the the valley. No, it very specifically mentions, in fact, twice in verse 24, that this fire and sulfur came from the Lord. So there is no doubt about it. It's probably even uh, hinting at the fact that there's more than one person in the Godhead as well. Because one is in heaven and one is calling this down. This was the Lord's judgment because of the wickedness of the people in that region. And what it teaches is that the Lord will will judge sin. It shows the righteousness of the Lord. That when he pours out his judgment, it's never arbitrary. But it is fully deserved. The Lord is fully justified in pouring out his judgment on sinners. Why? Because that is what sinners deserve. So the Lord decimates the entire region of Sodom and Gomorrah and its associated cities. And now verse 26 tells us what happened to Lot's wife. But Lot's wife behind him 
looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now the looking back, it's not so much the idea that, you know, they were all running and then, you know, Lot's wife suddenly had a quick look and, you know, she became a pillar of salt. No, I, I don't think that's what's happened there. This looking back, it has more the idea of a lingering gaze. I want you to consider a couple of things, and it might shed some light as to what happened to Lot's wife. Firstly, the angels had specifically told Lot and his wife and his two daughters after they came out of Sodom, don't look back. Do not stop anywhere in the valley, but quickly run to safety. And we also know that the Lord did not bring down judgment till Lot actually got all the way to Zoar. No judgment was poured down till he actually got to safety. So here's what's happened to Lot's wife. While they were all running for safety, Lot's wife stopped. And she turned around. And she looked at Sodom. She didn't want to leave Sodom. And again there, in some sense, it also speaks of Lot's lack of influence in his wife's life. And so what you see here is that she disobeyed. She, she stopped in the valley while everyone was running at some point, And then she looked back and she just lingered there. Maybe even she, she maybe even turned back to Sodom. She was disobedient and she forfeited the Lord's offer to be saved. And she suffered the judgment of the Lord. Which is why when Lot got to Zoar, his wife wasn't there. She stopped somewhere way before. And then the judgment fell on her when Lot got to Zoar. And it may be that sulfur and fire consumed her and then her dead corpse, because of all this, became a crusted pillar of sulfur and salt. Oh, how terrifying is the judgment of the Lord. And as, as this decimation has taken place, the camera turns from that scene and it turns to Abraham. And it's at the crack of dawn and Abraham comes to the place where he had petitioned before the Lord. Verses 27 and 28. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So Abraham comes and, and looks out over the valley. And he sees the utter destruction that has taken place in the valley. Everything alive is totally destroyed. Everything is burnt up. 
And the smoke is coming up like from a furnace. Almost like a nuclear bomb has just gone off. And what does Abraham understand? He understands that there is not even ten righteous in Sodom. And God was just to do so. But here's the thing. He doesn't know what happened to his nephew Lot. And just as a side note, I just want to say this with our prayers. Sometimes when we pray to the Lord and we petition for things, it may be that the Lord has actually answered prayer, but we don't see it. Because here, the Abraham has no idea the Lord has actually answered his prayer. But the Lord indeed has answered his prayer. And so sometimes, you know, you see a person and you share the gospel with them and you pray for them and you're praying for them for years and, and you don't know if that person will ever get saved. And that's true. But you just trust the Lord. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean that it may not have happened. verse 29 it serves as a summary verse and it tells us what the Lord has done here and so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? That was Abraham's rhetorical question as he was petitioning with the Lord as he stood there the last time. And at the end of this account, we can wholeheartedly say, yes, 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 and amen. The Lord judged and destroyed the cities of the valley because of their wickedness, and they deserved it. And yet, God also answered Abraham's prayer and did not wipe out righteous lot. He did not wipe out the righteous along with the wicked. But he spared him. And then beyond that, while it wasn't exactly Sodom, the Lord still spared the city of Zoar, a little Sodom, because of the one righteous man, Lot, as compromised as he was. And so did God answer Abraham's prayer? Yes, he did. Oh, the condescension of the Lord. Oh, the grace and mercy of the Lord. What a gracious and merciful God he is, and he will do what is right. Now, if there's anyone listening to this message today, and you are not a Christian, I want to tell you that Jude 7 tells us that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, it serves as an example of the eternal judgment that is going to come. Just as surely as Sodom and Gomorrah suffered the judgment of God because of their sin, so the eternal judgment of the Lord is coming when Jesus returns 
for all sinners. And I want you to understand this, friend, that this too is a mercy from God. That to be warned of some grave danger that is going to come about is a mercy. Every sinner apart from Christ will stand guilty as a sinner before the eternally righteous judge. And if you do not know Christ, then when you stand before this righteous judge of all, he will see everything about you. He will see your thoughts, your desires, your deeds, things that are hidden. Nothing will be hidden from his sight. Absolutely nothing. And you will be found guilty before him and God will be just in condemning you eternally. Now, if you're listening this morning and, and you say, I recognize I am guilty before the Lord. I recognize I am a sinner. And I deserve only the judgment of God because that's who I am. I don't deserve to be saved. My sin deserves God's judgment and God is right to do so. But you say, but is there any hope for me? Is there any mercy for me? Is there any grace for me? Let me tell you, friend, there is grace for you. There is mercy for you. You see, the same God, He sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come into this world to live a perfect, righteous life. And then he died bearing the judgment of sinners like you and me on the cross of Calvary. And he died taking the place of sinners. And then he rose up on the third day having conquered sin and death and having paid the price for sin. Providing a way for sinners like you and me to be saved. Friend, if you recognize this morning what Jesus has done, then I would say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. And if you do believe, then turn away from your sin and turn to him and continue to turn to him because that is the evidence that you have truly put your faith in him. For those of us who are believers, let me just say this and we'll end. What we all deserve is the judgment of God. That is what we deserve. But God has shown us His undeserving mercy and grace to sinful people like us through Jesus Christ. And so in light of that, let's marvel at the mercy that's shown to us and let it cause us to further rely on Him, to further be confident in Him, and to further live as a Christian, boldly confident in Him, living as light and salt in this world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for who You are. You are so unlike us. We thank You that You are just and righteous.
And yet we thank you that it pleased you to send your son to be crushed for our sake. We thank you for the mercy and the grace that has been shown and that continues to be shown every single day. Help us each day to live in light of that, in worship, glorifying you, boldly standing for you, and making much of you in this world. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.